Today's episode is brought to you by Witch Digital. If you're a witchy small business owner, listen up. Are you tired of feeling like the only digital marketing help out there is some ultra-modern agency filled with mansplainers? Do you wish there was a digital marketing agency made by and for people like you? Then let me introduce you to Witch Digital, a team of marketing witches based in Virginia and New York City. Whether it's branding, developing a new website, or helping you make sense of social media, the Witch team has helped more than 25 small businesses in the past year alone achieve their goals. If you've been putting off hiring someone to help you with your digital marketing efforts, consider this your sign. It's time to take the first step by reaching out to the team at Witch Digital. Head over to witchdigital.com, and witch is spelled V-V-I-T-C-H, and mention the Witch Wave to save 10% off all their services through the end of 2021. That's witchdigital.com, V-V-I-T-C-H digital.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Temperance Home and Bar. If you're looking for a fun and safe way to spend the Samhain season, shop online at Temperance Home and Bar by Floodwitch. There you'll find cocktail rituals and sigil kits geared toward Halloween. Visit www.floodwitch.com or find it on Etsy and Instagram at Temperance Home Bar. And if you use code WITCHWAVE, you'll get 10% off. For magical, radical self-care with a little sanse in it, it's Temperance Home and Bar by Floodwitch. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Path 365. The Path 365 Daily Direction for Ladies and Mothers, Witches and Others is a book that allows you to open your mind, body, and spirit to a path that is uniquely yours. As a gateway spirituality guide, it weaves coping mechanisms identified in neuroscience and mental health that address mind, body, and spirit and incorporates them into an easy-to-read daily guide. It gently encourages people to open their mind to a spiritual path of their own. Like a daily oracle read for the soul, The Path 365 takes you through a journey of positive self-discovery and encourages you to incorporate your practice into every aspect of your being. Author Susie Newell received her doctorate from the University of Cincinnati focusing on coping mechanisms for women with substance use disorder. She took these coping mechanisms a step further, offering them to everyone, whether you have a diagnosis or not. So whether you have a solid spiritual practice or are exploring your options, The Path 365 is a unique guide to creating a path of your own. Visit The Path 365 for more details, evidence, and ordering options. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave.
Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. Oh, we are in the middle of glorious October, or busy season as I call it around these parts. And it's so easy for us witchy folk to get caught up in autumn celebrations and magical projects and Halloween movie marathons. But let us not forget that this is also a truly sacred time of year. We are approaching Samhain, the holy day when we commune with our dearly departed ones. And so even as our schedules get busy with hopefully fully vaccinated gatherings, let us remember to take time to honor our ancestors and connect with their spirits. I've come to learn in recent years that ancestor magic is not only a way of deepening our relationship with our family line, which strengthens our own magic, it's also a way of decolonizing the practice of witchcraft because so often people turn to magical practices outside their own lineage because of a feeling that something was missing or lacking from their own spiritual upbringing. I can certainly relate to that myself as someone who turned to witchcraft because my Jewish upbringing didn't feel like quite enough for me from a magical perspective when I was growing up. As many of you know and have heard me talk about on the show a bunch now, it's only in the last few years that I've circled back to diving deeper with Jewish folk magic practices and mythology and ancestry work, and the ways in which I'm incorporating all of that into my several decades old witchcraft practice is an imperfect perpetual work in progress. Now, I'm not suggesting that we must all only stick to the practices of our own backgrounds. For the same reason, I don't believe we should only eat the food or listen to the music or speak the languages of our families of origin. But I do believe that there are things that we can do and should do to make sure we're not being culturally appropriative or profiting off of or discrediting other people or doing anything else that's otherwise harmful. And I can tell you firsthand that connecting more deeply to the stories and magic of my ancestors has been one really important ingredient in helping me become a more mindful witch. And it's also helping heal a lot of those wounds and hungers that were born out of the false belief that my family's traditions weren't as potent or interesting or relevant or available to me as those of others might have seemed. And so I really enjoy talking to other witches who have also circled back to their own ancestral magic while still grappling with the messy, ever-influx topics of identity and colonization and cross-pollination of culture. And that's why I appreciate the work of today's guest, Dr. Lorraine Montague, whose new book, Brujas, The Magic and Power of Witches of Color, is out now. In our conversation, we discuss the healing that comes with connecting to the magic of ancestors, how to be a steward for sacred land, and the ever-complicated attempt 
to decolonize our spiritual research and practices. But before we get to that, first let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Kira writes, I was just listening to a Witchwave Plus episode from last spring, and my ears really perked up when I heard you talk about your own house hunt and the ways you used magic in the process. My wonderful partner and I have been looking for a home to purchase for a few years, and it has been an intense process for me. I grew up in a financially insecure and fractured family that struggled with both addiction and making rent, and moved very often. I've wanted to own my own home since I was old enough to understand that was a thing, and yet I've really struggled to get energetically aligned with this search. I have fantasies about casting spells to manifest the space we need to build our dreams, but I get stymied by a myriad of insecurities, guilt, and fear. The real estate market feels insidious, and bringing my magic to it is uncomfortable. I am deeply concerned with land stewardship, native ecology, and indigenous sovereignty, and petitioning spirit to grant me, a white woman, home on unceded Ohlone territory puts me into an existential tailspin. I am so privileged to even be eligible to potentially buy a home in coastal California where I was born and raised, but this market really requires a tenacity and confidence I seem unable to muster, even though creating home sanctuary is one of my greatest joys and absolutely critical to my overall happiness and well-being. Fourth house stellium and Capricorn, baby. (laughs) So far, we have made a list of what we want in our future home and put it on my altar. And just this month, after years of saying we had to wait until we bought a house, we finally adopted a precious kitten, which kind of felt like a hopeful spell in and of itself. Do you have any other suggestions? I would love to hear anything you want to share about how you've approached your own house hunt and if or how you've wrestled with any of these feelings or suggestions for owning your desires even when they're tangled up in broken capitalist systems. Thank you so much for all of your witch wisdom and for bringing magic to my ears through your enchanting podcast. I hope your own home dreams are manifesting beautifully. Aw, thank you so much, Kira. Ah, house hunting, house buying, house owning, such a complicated topic, especially now and especially here in America. And look, there is unfortunately no way I can address this topic with the full nuance it deserves in this short Witchwire segment, but here's what I will say. I believe that one of the gifts that witches have is to be able to hold multiple truths at the same time and to honor the light and the shadow of any situation. In other words, it is true that the land you occupy and I occupy and many people listening to this occupy was stolen from its original indigenous owners. And it is true that owning a home buys into a deeply flawed capitalist system which exploits natural resources and privileges a select group of people, usually white people, thanks to the racism and classism that is built into these systems. It is also true 
that every human being deserves a home that is safe and healthy and comfortable and beautiful. I don't believe depriving yourself of something out of guilt or some sense of penance necessarily does any good to help the people that the land was stolen from or who aren't able to buy a home themselves due to living under an oppressive, racist, capitalist system. And so the question you can ask yourself is, how can I wholeheartedly and happily own a home that allows me to honor the original landowners and lift other people up? Now, I can't give you those answers, But I think that by incorporating questions like these into our spell work, we will land on, pardon the pun, an answer that feels right to each of us. Perhaps it's donating time or money to indigenous organizations or fair housing orgs or to land stewardship nonprofits. Maybe it's helping one specific person or family to somehow achieve their dream of home ownership. Maybe you can grow food on your land that you can then donate to a food pantry or household in need. But I think that when you are making your list of the things you want in your house, you know, the bathtub and the dishwasher and the magical outdoor space, etc., you can also add the intention that this home be a source of healing and generosity towards others. And on a purely pragmatic level, I also recommend using some sort of key symbol in your spell work, especially a skeleton key if you can find one. But once you own your home, just make sure that you stay committed to sharing your good fortune with others in whatever ways you and spirit have revealed to be appropriate and meaningful. Keep an active altar in your house to honor the energy and spirits of the place and to keep you devoted to your promise of paying your prosperity forward to those who will benefit from it. We haven't closed on our house just yet, but fingers crossed and spirit willing, we'll be doing so soon. And I fully intend to do what I can to honor the land it's on through both spiritual and material acts. Getting back to you, I think adding this extra element of devotion and justice and love to your house magic and making the spell bigger than just you and your desires is going to help untangle that conflict inside you. And I also believe that it will lead you to a home for you and your partner and your new kitty that is lovely and joyful and that helps you contribute to making the world around you a more just, more beautiful place. Good luck. Now, on to my guest. Lorraine Montague is a Cuban-Colombian writer born in Miami, Florida. She is the author of Brujas, The Magic and Power of Witches of Color. Lorraine holds a Ph.D. in communication from the University of South Florida, where she began her research on Bruja feminism and the reclamation of ancestral healing traditions. Inspired to the spiritual life by her great-grandmother, who was an espiritista in Cuba, she facilitates astrology workshops and moon circles in her local community of Tampa, Florida. Lorraine joined me from her home in Tampa via Zoom. 
Dr. Lorraine Montague. Welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm so happy to have you here. You have been on my radar for a while. And when I heard about your new book, I was just like, I cannot wait to talk to her. Thank you so much. So let's dive in. How did Bruja's The Magic and Power of Witches of Color come to be? I started writing this book in my PhD program, actually. I was in the middle of a transition between departments, and I was getting kicked out of a department because it was getting too sciencey. <laughs> the department was, or your work was? Yeah, this happens a lot in academic departments. It was a geography department, and I was more of a social geographer. And it just got really environmental sciencey, and I had to jump ship. And I found a wonderful program in communication that let me basically write whatever I wanted. And I asked myself, if I could do any project, what would I want to do? I am the child of Cuban and Colombian immigrants. We came to this country without much of our heirlooms or photographs or stories. And there were a lot of family silences around certain traumatic events revolving around our exile. I just wanted to delve in to use that time to explore my own ancestry. My great-grandmother was a spirit medium in Cuba, and she held seances. So this was at the time when spiritism was raging everywhere, and it was also happening throughout the Caribbean, a form called espiritismo, which is the Spanish word for spiritism. It was mostly catering to the middle upper classes who wanted to have a thrill. Mm. But I think the Caribbean iteration of spiritism was a little more organic for the people. And at the time, there was a lot of crony capitalism happening in Cuba. I think that religion, and particularly the Afro-Caribbean religions, Santeria especially, became a way to commune and to rebel in some ways against a government that wasn't including all the people. Let me pause you there for a moment. You write so beautifully about many of your ancestors, and I'm so happy that you started with, it, it was your great-grandmother, is that right? Yes. When you were growing up, did you know that she had had these experiences? Did you know that she was a medium, or was that kind of hidden from you? I knew it. It was something that my family was kind of proud of, but also didn't talk about at all. So um, <laughs> I... <laughs> I was coming of age, I was, you know, maybe 15 and I was starting to experience or I had been for a few years experiencing some strange phenomena in my bedroom. I would be, I saw shadows. It felt like things were trying to speak to me. I was very confused about it. And I knew she was one of the only people I could probably tell and ask. So I approached her. She was getting to the end of her life. She was in her nineties. And I said, Aulita, I'm seeing these things and I don't know what to do about it. And all she said was, close your eyes and pray. She wouldn't talk about it and she wouldn't tell me what to do. Mm. And she had already assimilated to Christianity. I just explored on my own and found witchcraft, which I really uh, resonated with you and was very inspired by your book. Because it was a little bit like the same process. You're, you're a kid, you don't know where to start, and you just start exploring, connecting with the witch aesthetic, and just cobbling together 
your own way of doing things. So you were growing up in Florida, is that right? Yes, I was in Miami. And your great-grandmother, she moved here, and so you got to know her here, or did you get to know her in Cuba? Yeah, she she moved everybody over, so we all lived in Miami, and that was my first experience with her. And was bruja or witch a word that was used in your family, or is that a word you kind of came to discover? No, absolutely not. Mm-mm. It was not a good word. It was a word that meant Satan worship or, you know, demonic stuff. It wasn't something that I could openly say, so I kept it all secret. That was part of the impetus for writing this book. It was a reclamation of a word that we weren't allowed to use in order to dig into the histories that we weren't allowed to talk about. Mm. In the process of that, I found that there were lots of people doing this and it wasn't just me. I know that sounds naive to say now after so many years of being involved in this project and in these communities, Bruja's online, but I found that so many of us were looking to quote unquote, reclaim the histories of our ancestral traditions. So let's dive into, you know, you're a teenager, you're getting into Wicca and kind of what I think of as like <laughs> mall witchcraft. And I say yeah. that with love because as a child of the 90s myself, I was reading a lot of those same books. And in your book, you talk about the film, The Craft. We do have a lot of the same kind of markers in our paths, you and me. I'm wondering when did you start realizing that perhaps the witchcraft, which was largely coming from Europe, you know, and filtering through Wicca and getting into these books that people like you and myself were reading when we were teenagers, when did you start identifying that it wasn't entirely speaking to you and your lineage? It didn't answer any questions about our exile and our histories and why we had to leave our home countries. There always, it felt like there was a, a gap. I didn't understand why we were so removed and why we had to leave those things behind. So I think that while it provided a scaffolding for me, the mainstream witchcraft of the time, and it was very exciting for me, it didn't help me understand my family and why we were hurting so much and why it was so difficult for us to make our way here and why so many of us were experiencing trauma and mental illness and why I was seeing shadows in the corners of the room. So I had to go back in some way. You have this beautiful line in the book. You write, what if what we see as a supernatural illness is the result of colonization and exile? This disconnect from our lands that has weakened our relationship, our stories. And I'd love for you to expound upon that a little bit because I find it really moving, the notion that a lot of things that get classified as mental illness or genetic issues, I 100% believe that those are valuable words to use and approaches, but that's not the entire story. There are other ways to address trauma and there are other ways to address pain. So can you speak a little bit about your discoveries in terms of how spirituality and magic helped 
you go on this path of healing? Yeah, so I wrote that line, I think, in the chapter about the ancestral curse. And there was this sense in my family that there was something that happened many generations back that kept being passed on the line and that we couldn't do anything about it. Our lives were somehow cursed. My grandmother had a difficult life. It passed on to my mother. It passed on to me. And we're all dealing with this thing, this shadow. I think over the course of writing this book and speaking to so many people and hearing so many stories, I realized that's almost a limiting belief, this idea that it's faded, that there's no getting out of it. And we see this in so many of our folktales across Latin America and in indigenous Latin American myths. The idea that we're cursed and we can't get out of our story. That it's inevitable. It's inevitable that we will be doomed. And so many of the stories like La Llorona, which I mentioned in the book, The Weeping Woman, she's not only a victim, but she's a monster and she can't be saved. And I realized as we were talking that we don't include as a character the colonizer in the story that is always there in the background. Can you familiarize listeners with that story again? I'm sure some people know, but not everybody. Yeah. So La Llorona, which is such a part, I think it's probably the most pervasive myth across Latin America, is about a woman, an indigenous woman usually, uh, who's sometimes bathing by a river. There's usually a river involved. And she's in this beautiful community. And she comes upon, or the man comes upon her rather, usually a white man, a colonizer of sorts, a Spanish man. They fall in love, they have children, and then he leaves her. He cheats on her and he decides he wants to marry somebody of his own level. He, you know, a white woman that his family would approve of. And in some instances of the story, he calls for his children and he tries to take them from her. Mm. The only thing she can do is take them to the river and drown them. Mm. It's uh, the only thing she thinks she can do. The only power she thinks she has. And so she becomes a monster. For all of eternity, she roams the riverbanks, weeping for her lost children. And she's so scary. And my grandmother told me the story. A lot of grandmothers tell their children these stories to keep them inside at night. Yeah, they say that she's going to get you, right? She's going to get you because she misses her children and she wants all the children for herself. And so she becomes a monster, an uh, incurably mentally ill woman. Mm. There's no discussion in the story about what made her so, who she was reacting to, the impossible situation she found herself in. And I saw this thread in so many of our stories. We were responding to abuse, exile, trauma, usually at the hands of, if not an actual man, the patriarchy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or capitalism or something, some institution that wasn't working for us and that made us the aberrant ones. So I think instead of treating this like a curse, we should see it as an opportunity to look at our systems and ask ourselves how they're not working for us anymore. Because mm. if we're if we're not the protagonists of our own stories, then something's wrong there. Absolutely. You call La Llorona, and forgive me, I did not take Spanish when I was growing up, so my pronunciation is going to be garbage. 
Um, but but you, okay. you call her the original Bruja. Can you tell me why that is? What made you think she is a witch or a witch figure? And I'll take this opportunity to say, since you mentioned you're Spanish, that Spanish doesn't make you any more or less Latina or Latinx member of this community. I think we we always think of that as the marker of how we belong here. So, you know, my Spanish is also very much Spanglish. So I'm, I'm always honing it too. But anyway, yeah, I think La Llorona is, it's that wound. It's the mother wound. When you've been removed from your motherland in some way, whether it's through exile or war or just being separated from your family in some way, it creates a wound that is too scary to look upon. Mm -hmm. And we have this kind of woman throughout cultures and in every culture, there's a myth of like the scary woman, right? There's, Mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've spoken about her before. There's Lilith um, who who could not stay in Eden. You know, uh, there was Callie who rips men's heads off. She is so terrible to look upon, but it's because she speaks some truth about what we've lost and what we are so yearning to regain. Mm, Beautifully said. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Wishcraft Goods creates home decor and accessories to support your modern spiritual practice. Wishcraft's creations honor the balance of light and shadow, the moon in all its phases, and the personal power ignited by spiritual seeking. Each piece is lovingly designed and crafted by art witch Maggie Wilhite in her backyard studio in Austin, Texas, and they are so stylish and charming. I just love them. Wishcraft's goods include pouches and tote bags for your tarot cards, crystals, and other magical treasures, trays, bowls, and cloths for your altar, crystals, or jewelry, witchy enamel pins and durable vinyl stickers, mystical mugs for whatever brew you're sipping on, inspiring wall hangings and printable digital downloads to adorn your sacred space, and designs featuring magical creatures like cats, wolves, mermaids, owls, unicorns, and more. Shipping within the U.S. is always free with no minimum. So go ahead and shop online at wishcraftgoods.com, that's W-I-S-H craftgoods.com, and follow at wishcraftgoods on Instagram and TikTok. And best of all, Witchwave listeners get 15% off using offer code WITCHWAVE. So head on over to wishcraftgoods.com and use offer code WITCHWAVE for 15% off. 2,000 years ago, in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles, my favorite. Handmade from the purest East Coast golden cappings beeswax with that natural, subtle, honey and floral scent, Mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. 
Mithras candles come in natural gold and rich black varieties. You can also get them in their signature, stunning, hand-dripped style, or you can choose their smooth and rustic version. They also have wide pillars for sale if you're feeling extra expansive with your magic. And very exciting, they now have new long-sleeve black t-shirts for sale, and I am so excited to get mine because I love a long-sleeve shirt, and this one is gorgeous. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com, and offer code WITCH gets you 13% off your first order. Thank you, Mithras. I'm a big fan of therapy and have seen firsthand how much talking to a professional has helped me manage my own anxiety and stress and trauma so that I can live the fullest life I possibly can. I've also seen how it's changed the lives of so many people that I care about for the better as well. And that's why I am encouraging you to check out BetterHelp which is an online counseling service that can provide you with your own licensed professional counselor to talk to via video or phone sessions. And it doesn't have to be that heavy of a topic. Maybe you just need a place to be heard and have an outside perspective on your everyday struggles with your job or your relationships. We all have so much that we're carrying with us these days between our personal issues and, need I say, global issues, and it's just a lot. And I'm telling you, talking it all through with someone who is trained and objective and not a friend or family member is such a gift because their job Their actual job is to listen to you and help you work through your feelings about it all. So please consider reaching out to the folks at BetterHelp, and they'll connect you with a counselor who you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. And they've been doing remote sessions since before it became the norm, so they've built a platform that's accessible, convenient, and secure. Also know that BetterHelp offers financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it really easy to switch counselors so you can find one that you truly click with. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com witchwave. That's better, H-E-L-P dot witchwave. Please take care of your mental well-being. It is so necessary, and there is absolutely support out there for you. Do what over a million people have done already, and head on over to betterhelp.com witchwave, find a great counselor to talk to, and know that I am here rooting for you. Feel well, and take good care with BetterHelp. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lorraine Montague. 
So I want to get us back to the idea of intergenerational curses, the notion of spirituality as potentially an aspect of healing intergenerational trauma. This is something I can very much relate to in my own life. Listeners know that I am of Jewish ancestry, and of course, that is just <laughs> a mountain of trauma and persecution, as, as we all know. And I know there are theories of epigenetics now that mm-hmm. suggest that perhaps these things that we think of as, you know, mental illness or trauma or anxiety, depression, all these different words literally are written on our DNA, that we do inherit these traumas and these reactions or protections to these traumas on this cellular level, potentially. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how you think that doing this kind of ancestral magic or ancestral mining, if you will, can lead to healing. I surprised myself in my journey through this research. I thought I was looking for those indigenous genes. You know, we we all want to tap into the ancestral power that comes from something before the thing that hurt us, something before colonization and capitalism. And what I found is that there's too much of the colonizer in me to wade through first, and that that's the first step. And especially as a white Latina, you know, I present as white. I walk through this world in a different way than my brown cousins do. So I think there's even more of a responsibility on my part to look at the way that I have colonized others. I think that I have a responsibility to see the ways that I am perpetuating some of these things we call colonization. And I know that's a big buzzword now and it means a lot of things. But for me, it was really decentering my voice and using this as a platform for as many brujas as possible, as many people from different traditions as possible, and people who look different from me and have a completely different experience of being a first-generation immigrant in this country. And so for me, connecting to my ancestors, actually, the first step was seeing how privileged I was to even be doing this work. Mm, mm. That's really interesting. And I wanted to talk about whiteness and colonization, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't expecting you to answer the question about healing in that way. And so just to complete the thought, am I correct in saying that by you doing I know shadow work is also a big buzzword, but by you kind of looking at those parts of yourself and the ways in which you enact colonization, that that has then helped you heal or at least not perpetuate that kind of colonizer mentality. Is that right? For sure. I looked back to my great grandmother's story. I realized that she was calling on African spirits and she also is a white lady. I thought I started this journey wanting to be her, wanting to learn from her, wanting to replicate what she did and be a spirit medium and help other people. And what I realized is, you know, she might have overstepped her bounds and she might have tapped into things that maybe weren't hers to do. Mm. And so part of my ancestral healing is being honest about that Mm. and asking myself, 
how I can do better on my own journey of healing. And what I've come to is being less of an actor and more of a listener mm-hmm. and, uh, and learning and being more of a student than a teacher. I think a lot of us on this journey want to be healers and we feel that we are inside. But before we can do that, we have to really listen and truly get on that path of healing, which is very, very hard. And it doesn't happen overnight before we can do things for other people. Ah, I mean, I just I just want to give you the biggest hug because (laughs) I wish more people talked about that. And it's true. There are so many people who go out in the world and they frame themselves as some form of healer or leader or guide, and they haven't done that work on themselves. And so they then perpetuate further damage. So I really, really respect and appreciate that you have that attitude and that approach, and it definitely comes through in your book. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the way that this book is structured. Okay. Because it's really interesting, and actually the more I read your book, the more I could relate to the challenge of trying to weave together all of these different elements into something cohesive because I had that challenge with my book, Waking the Witch. And you do it really beautifully and you weave through stories of your family and from your own autobiography. But you also in each chapter highlight stories of other brujas or, you know, practitioners of some form of Latinx magic or Latinx derived magic. And then at the end of every chapter, you do have some, I'll call them magical action items, you know, some suggestions for rituals and spells that people might want to try. And then the final piece of every chapter is you have this amazing list of resources of different practitioners so people can dive in. All of this to say you definitely do a lot of spotlighting of other people. So what made you decide to do that? And how did you thread the needle showing all of these different facets of what I'll loosely call like brujeria? But I'm wondering kind of what your approach was in terms of how you organized the book to make sure all of these different facets and lived experiences were represented, even ones that are not your own. I am a Gemini. (laughs) So I am. (laughs) Say no more. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I am a bit of a magpie for information and stories. And it is my weakness and my strength. I wanted to talk to as many people as I could. I wanted this book to include everyone. I spent so much of the research was in conversation with others. And in those conversations, I would share my own experiences, what I was dealing with at the time. I wrote the book largely during the pandemic, and it became a much different book than I had proposed because my method had to go out the window. I couldn't go anywhere in person. I couldn't attend events and workshops. Of course, a lot of those things moved online, but a lot of them fell off completely for a while. Mm. And what I had was the generosity of people speaking with me. And I was going through it for a few months there. I I had a personal loss in my life and I couldn't write for months. But what I could do was talk to people. I think as I went over those conversations and transcribed them for the chapters and for the stories, I just saw how our stories were intertwined in each conversation. So everybody I talked to, it prompted 
me to think about the things I was going through. And some of them, it's very obvious. When I went to the Brooklyn Brujeria Festival, that was one of the only things I did in person. You know, I was actually there. So it was easy to intertwine my story with that. Yeah. And others, you know, like in La Loba Loca's case, they were doing a workshop on gardening right when everything shut down. And I was looking for a little lifeline. And I found that putting my hands in the dirt like they told us to do, moving the dirt around, making the soil better for plants helped me. So I'm hoping that the reader feels that organic connection I actually had with the people I interviewed. I became friends with some of them and we fostered some relationships over months and months. Interspersed in there, I wanted to make sure that every chapter had a little bit of background on whatever the major theme of that chapter is. So in the first part of the book, it's a lot of about different ancestral traditions, certainly not exhaustive. I was hoping that people would, their interest would be piqued in certain traditions and there's a wealth of books already out there about each one of those. And I offer them up as further resource. And the second part of the book is around spiritual activism and all the different ways that manifest in the work of brujas and witches of color out there. And the third part is about just how we're getting by during the pandemic, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get to is in this book, you highlight people from all different regions mm-hmm. and ancestral lines and you interface with them. In some cases, you are, you know, learning from them or doing rituals. In other cases, you're having these wonderful conversations. Yeah. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about where was the line for you in terms of what you were willing to engage with from practices that were outside your own family line? And I'm asking you that not to challenge you. I'm asking you that so that listeners can learn from you, perhaps. And, and I know nobody has the bottom line answer to this. We're all figuring it out. But I would love to know what your standards were in terms of when you felt like you were appropriating or not or when you were learning, you know what I mean? Um, Because I know there are some practices that are closed and there are some practices that are open. So I'd love to hear you respond to that. Yes. So I wanted to approach the word bruja and the definition that I offer in as inclusive a way as possible to signify this emerging thing that's happening that does derive from all these other traditions, but in a way is something completely new that we're creating together that is not just about reclaiming and and returning and going back, but also about looking to the future together as a new community and a more inclusive community, making something else, you know, something Mm. better. Mm. And so, yes, it includes all of these threads of traditions and we're not a monolith and they're also different and some of them are closed. And I believe that you need to be invited into those. So I'm thinking religions like Santeria, Bodu, usually require initiation, usually require some ancestral link or at least some teacher-student connection. While I approach it in the form of a student and I offer some background information about what those religions are, it's not my place to write rituals based on those traditions or expose secrets 
first off, I don't know them because I'm not part of those <laughs> religions. Yeah. And I did, I did speak with a couple practitioners of those religions and they didn't offer that up because it is closed. Yes. So I offer in the book what was offered to me. And I think that's the line of respect. That's all what it's about. It's consent. So, you know, when I was talking, I was like, what's okay to share and what's not okay to share. And it's as simple as that for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is a gray area because, you know, like somewhere along the book, I'm like chanting a Hindu mantra. I asked myself, is that okay? It's something that I've studied and that I feel connected to. And I think that's the line for me. I think if you approach something with respect, especially if it's an open tradition and you're wanting to learn and you want it for your own healing, I think that's great. I, for most people, I think speaking to everyone, I think that they really invite that. But if you're doing it for profit, I think that's where most people draw the line. Mm. When you come from outside of a tradition and you swoop in and you study it for a very short period of time, and then you turn around and start selling services or products, usually occulted for a reason, they're usually occulted because it was dangerous to do these things for certain people. And now you're turning around and like actually making a profit on things that people used to be hurt for doing. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that's the line for me. I offer these rituals because I want everyone to be able to have an entry point and they're decentralized rituals. They're not centered in any one tradition, but through them, you can explore your own ancestry or create your own traditions from this point on. Thank you. I think people are going to find that really helpful to hear because I know it's something that many of us are trying to do, quote unquote, right or well, but it is challenging. And I think we're all figuring it out as we go. So I really appreciate you talking me through that. Thank you for that. And on that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Simply enjoy listening to the Throne Room album or use it for divination by shuffling it at random. A waveform tarot deck to be found on all streaming platforms with the remaining suits busy being born. The chords too spell the titles to numerologically correspond to the major arcana in these 22 songs. This is track 14, Tempered. Spinning the wheel. Track 17, Guiding Star. The Throne Room by Swandy, a tarot repertoire. Dive into the magic of stories with an independent, witch owned bookstore. From occult how-to books to fictional tales, the Spiral Bookcase carefully curates stories that give you a glimpse through the worn spot in the tapestry and a chance to transcend reality for a moment or two. Explore magical books alongside a bewitching collection of candles, tarot decks, crystals, and ritual objects, all hand-selected for their wonder and enchantment. 
We have to support our indie bookshops right now more than ever. So please go on ahead and visit the Spiral Bookcase virtually at spiralbookcase.com or follow along on Instagram for recommendations, sneak peeks, and more from bookseller and owner Victoria. That's at Spiral Bookcase. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lorraine Montague. So it's very clear in the book that for you being a bruja, or we should say a brujo or brujex, is that right? Mm -hmm. For the gender non-binary word? Yes, brujex. Yes, I love that word. It's inherently political. At one point, you say, all spiritual activists are mediums in the sense that they open to the shadows. They filter suffering and transform it into healing. So can you talk a little bit about why you think that bruja, brujo, brujex are also political words? I don't think you can genuinely do this work without challenging institutions, without challenging who gets to migrate and who doesn't, who gets to have power and who doesn't. But that said, I don't think that activism and politics needs to be something that we overtly do on the streets. It doesn't have to be protests or showdowns or even raising money for a cause, I think that just the work of healing itself is political because we've been told all our lives we need to be a certain way. And in that moment of pausing and asking ourselves what it is we really need for ourselves, we are being revolutionary. We are saying, I will not walk this path that has been laid before me. I will pause, I will rest, and I will let my own creativity emerge, my own love emerge, and find my way from there, from a heart center. I think that is where all activism really starts. You need that intention. Why are you doing this? And I think that the brujas that I talk to and who are doing this work are doing it because they're just so full of love and pain for their people. Mm. And most of them didn't start right off the bat being these huge activists they and some of them never moved beyond the personal healing part they just sat with it you know let themselves feel they listened they held space for themselves and for others and that's what being an activist is about to me first i love the notion that you bring up in the book of healing land and healing the place that you live while acknowledging the pain that 
perhaps was inflicted upon the original people who populated that land. I loved reading about your little witch house in Florida and your gardening. And I was particularly moved by one of the people you quote who says that gardening is not about healing the plants or growing plants. It's about healing the soil and nourishing the soil, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So can you talk a little bit about land and your own relationship to it and how you have been thinking about it from a magical perspective? This was the next step for me after opening up to the ways I was hurting. The next step was connecting in some way to the material world to ground myself. While you're doing all this spiritual work, a lot of times we can get lost in it. And I think that the land has this beautiful power to bring us down to what matters. And that's what I felt at home alone during the pandemic, just so alone. You know, so many of us were so alone. And what did we have? And I was privileged, lucky enough to have a little piece of soil. And Loba calls it an endearing piece of soil or an endearing piece of land. Mm. They refer to it as a chakrita, like a chakra, mm. an energy center in itself. So land, we think of ourselves as having energy that land also does. And it probably does even more so because it has you know, absorbed the bodies of generations and generations of beings, mm. whether that's human or animal or fungus. And all of that wisdom is in there. Now, the way that we live with, you know, commercialized farming and development, it has depleted the soil a lot. It's hard to plant stuff. Oh, I live in Florida, so it's super hard to, to plant things here that will grow well unless it's a tropical native. And the soil needs to be turned and nourished. And I found such great healing in doing that and digging my hands into the earth and putting nutrients into it and seeing how things grow when you start with that healthy foundation and when you heal what's been leached by our consumer-driven, capitalism-driven world. It was just so simple. I would just sit in the dirt. And my neighbors probably thought I looked crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, she's doing it again. She's out there just sitting in the dirt. Or sometimes I would just stand there. <laughs> You know, and let the rain fall on me. It's a rite of passage for a <laughs> witch is. is making the neighbors look sideways at you every now and again. That's so true. Yeah, it was really healing to also think about whose land that was before me. We don't have really clear markers of indigenous peoples here in Florida. It's really hard to tell. Hmm. Not marked in any way as much as in some places. You know, a lot of the indigenous people here, at least where I grew up in the Everglades, were in hiding. Mm. It was like a lot of the Seminole that hid so that they wouldn't be relocated. That was their revolution. They lived in the Everglades and they became the Miccosukee. Mm. And so a lot of it is just hidden and not marked. A lot of what's marked is like the Spanish colonizers' names who came and sure. tore down all the trees. Mm. And so I just tried to connect to the very small amount of resources I had at my disposal. We don't have 
too many indigenous organizations here, but I decided to pay a land tax of my own to the ones that I could find. Mm. And when you say land tax, you just mean that you donated money to them. Mm -hmm. Just in your mind, you thought of it as a land tax. I love that kind of reparations, right? Right. And there are some places like Seattle that have an actual land tax. And, you know, of course, it's the West. They do everything great out there. Well, (laughs) not everything. (laughs) Everything. You're like, I'm a New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) But I take your point. Yes. So I thought, how can I do this for myself? And how can I put this in the book? So it is, I have a libation ritual for the land in there which is something that you can do for yourself, but also to honor the ancestors of the land. And as part of the ritual, I ask people to do some research about who those tribes are, who those groups are that they can donate to. Fabulous. Yeah, I really loved how the space of Florida comes through so much in your book. You talk about the swamp. You talk about alligators. They seem to come up a lot for you in dreams Mm -hmm. and as some kind of a symbolic being for you. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the book, you say, brujas hold reverence for hurricanes. And this notion of having a relationship with the weather of the land, whether the weather that you know, you experience in your present time or the weather that your ancestors potentially had to contend with and respect and and hold reverence for or negotiate with, as the case may be. So how are you thinking about things like climate change, magic, and your own bruja identity? Oh, boy. Yeah, the climate change is very real here. There's so many floods. The hurricanes are getting more severe. It's scary, particularly places like New Orleans that just get blasted all the time. Sure. It's. I certainly didn't want to romanticize it too much. I mean, I did. I totally romanticized it because there is a magic in it for me. I remember as a child sitting in the middle of Hurricane Andrew, just completely enraptured by the power of wind and rain that took off our, our roof while we were sitting there. Oh, my goodness. And I was, I was such a weird, this is how you knew I was going to be a weird witch, is that I was just like laughing. <laughs> oh my goodness, I can just picture you as this little witch, like laughing at the sky. Oh my goodness. Yes, yeah. And my parents like, what's wrong with you? And my brothers were asleep. I kept myself awake the whole time until the eye came over us and we could walk outside for just a moment and see the destruction. Mm. And I just was reveling in it. I was like, look at what weather can do, how quickly everything can be taken from us. And I don't know why it just excited me that that could happen. But it's also terrible. Of course. (laughs) I mean, it's both. It's a testament to how awe-striking and powerful and strong nature is, or perhaps nature deities are, if that's your framework for it. And also how absolutely terrifying they are. And that kind of brings me to sort of where you, without spoiling the end of the book, but near the end of the book, you kind of say that you're starting to feel a call toward death work. And it's this chapter where you talk about Santa Muerte. And I'm wondering if that call to death 
is something that you have since made a little bit more sense of? Has it changed shape since you finished the book? Or are you still kind of figuring out what kind of work you want to do in that space of death and healing? I'm mostly still figuring it out. I think that we really need death rituals in our culture and all of our cultures. We don't think about it enough. I think the pandemic really opened our eyes to that. And we need to prepare in some way for the inevitable. You know, everything we love will one day leave us. We will one day leave those we love. And we can prepare for that in a beautiful way. It doesn't have to be all terrible. It is like the hurricane also awe-inspiring that we're only here for a short period of time. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by ignoring it our whole lives until something happens. And having experienced tragedy recently that I never thought would come, it just changes you, you know? You just realize, wow, I could have been more present. It's not just about planning for death and writing your will. I thought I could maybe enter this work through that, just maybe creating a circle of people who will just want to plan for their, for their death, you know, writing wills and saying what they want out of their lives. Before yeah, it the, there's the death positivity movement, which I'm sure you're, yeah. you're aware of, which is yeah. all about doing those kinds of things and approaching death in this respectful kind of eyes wide open, heart wide open kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's not very common here. I had a friend who recently lost her father and asked me to look for a death doula and I couldn't find one. Oh, wow. So it, it really doesn't exist as a market here very much. So I would really like to contribute to that and to help people through these hard processes. But mostly I just want to be present with it in my life. And so I think that's the starting point is just try to be okay with it first. I'm still grieving and trying to come to terms with that. And I think Once that chapter closes, whenever that might be, I'll be moving, starting something, I think. Very community-oriented, so I think it would be really nice to bring people together the way I used to with moon circles pre-pandemic. Yes. But maybe it's a death circle. Maybe Mm. it's a death cafe, like, you know, that's really popular out west. Mm. Or I don't know if New York has those. Yeah, I've I've heard of them for sure. I have not been. Mm -hmm. But I definitely see how that could be something that is really healing in its own way. I mean, hey, I'm a big fan of tall talk over small talk and doesn't get much taller than talking about death. (laughs) (laughs) Strips everyone right down. (laughs) Exactly. Well, listen, I think this book is really, really beautiful. For your final moments here with me today, do you have an intention that you would like to speak into manifestation in terms of what you hope that this book is going to bring to various readers? I hope that whoever you are reading this, you'll find something inspiring, something to relate to, and a starting point. I want the book to be an introduction, and I want you to use the resources and go explore others. There's so many wonderful practitioners. I've been saying this kind of feels like a pandemic yearbook of the Bruja. So (laughs) I have like, I have people's IG handles in here and in like 10 years, they're going to be obsolete. (laughs) 
<laughs> probably, probably in two years. So it's, it's kind of funny. I thought about that when I was writing it. When like, Santa is- Muerte comes for Instagram. <laughs> right. And so I, I just really hope that you'll use it as an entryway and explore all the other practitioners out there in the book and beyond and find your own way and your own creativity. I think we all have something to create in this life, however small. Ah, beautiful. And last question, speaking of finding, where can people find you and this book? You can find this book at all major booksellers, but I'm encouraging everyone to, I'm holding it up like you can see it. You can't see it. (laughs) I can can see see it, it, and it's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'm encouraging people to go to their indie booksellers first. And usually you can request it even if they don't have it and they'll order it. And you can find me on IG at Witchy Heights. All right. Well, thank you for reaching Witchy Heights with me today. Lorraine, (laughs) congratulations again on this exquisite book. And thank you so much for being on the Witch Wave. I'm so eternally grateful to you, Pam. Thank you so much. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Lorraine Montague for sharing her story and her thoughtful brujeria with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider pre-ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>